0: Welcome to the First History Today podcast of 2014. In this episode, we speak to Richard Waite about Britain's complex relationship with its revolutionary past. Richard's article, Reluctant Regicides, which he co-wrote with Toby Haggith, is the cover story for our February issue, which is out later this week. Also in this issue, Andrew Pettigree outlines the birth of the newspaper in early modern Europe. Chris Turney uncovers a possible cover-up relating to the tragic demise of Captain Scott's expedition to the South Pole. Mary Erler reveals a remarkable cache of letters which shed light on the unlikely relationship between Thomas Cromwell and a female religious. And Patricia Farah considers the opportunities for scientists, particularly women, during the First World War. The February issue is out on newsstands from January 23rd. You can also download the digital edition for iPad, Kindle Fire, Android Tablet and smartphones by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash app. Now, here's Paul Lay speaking to Richard Waite about Britain's reluctant regicides.
2: Our cover story for the February edition of History Today is Reluctant Regicides, in which Richard Waite and Toby Haggis discuss why modern Britons find it so hard to acknowledge their revolutionary pasts. And Richard Waite joins us. Uh, in a recent Home Office publication, a survey of British history uh, omitted all references to the civil wars because, and I quote, the wounds are still too fresh. It seems surprising that anyone should think that's the case.
3: I think it's extraordinary, Paul. The English killed their king and they don't like to talk about it and it is extraordinary um, given that it's had such an influence on in the 18th century on American revolutionaries on French revolutionaries um, and yet here in Britain, it's treated either with um, amne- a collective amnesia, um, embarrassment um, uh, on both sides. And both you know, the, the royalist majority and the republican minority uh, are embarrassed by it. Um, and that's extraordinary because it's, it's not just a great bit of our history, but an influential piece of world history.
2: You might even say that's the case. Uh, for the whole period of the civil wars.
3: Yes, that's right. I, I, it's because it just conflicts with uh, what used to be called the Whig interpretation of history, but still, to some extent, we have that narrative of our history of a democracy that evolves, uh, evolves peacefully. Um, hence the fact we prefer to talk about the glorious revolution of 1688 and the, the more peaceful trans, uh, transition to representative government. And the Civil War, as you said, generally, not just the Regicide, but the whole Civil War period conflicts with that rather cozy narrative. Um, uh, uh, It's a revolution. Uh, And, uh, of course, kings have been killed before, but they've been killed usually on the field of battle, fighting foreign enemies, or in secret through, you know, the dynastic struggles of the medieval and early modern period. But here was a king who was killed, uh, and Cromwell was... Very insistent that the the king should be killed in the sight of his people. Of course, before TV and the internet, in the sight of his people meant a few thousand people in Whitehall. But nonetheless, this was done in public. And the other difference was it was done for ideological reasons. Uh, It was done in the name of the people, the citizens. It wasn't about dynastic struggle or foreign battles.
2: Because, of of course, the English had killed their kings before, but never explicitly in in an ideological way as they did in in 1649. I mean, we can see certainly that that it's a shocking moment then. And, of course, there's the case of Penny, uh, which is always the uh, observation that's made of of contemporary references to that. That's that's the, the young boy. Who, who, who was witness to the to the uh, regicide?
3: Yes, but, what's been repeated. I mean, in ch- book books that I read, I read RG, R. J. Unsted I think uh, illustrated histories of Britain when I was a kid, and um, the, the the one on the Civil War says uh, repeats this quote from this teenage witness saying, "As you know, as the head, Charles the First, head fell, it was such a groan as I never heard before, and desire I may never hear again." But actually, he was uh, um, he was a courtier. Uh, in the restoration, uh, his father had been very close to Charles I, so he's not what you call a, um, uh, a, an objective observer. And I think a lot of the reason that the regicide's been written out is the way the restoration's been written in. We, we're, we taught, I certainly was, I think to some extent it's still true, that, you know, exit the Puritans, enter Nell and Christopher Wren, um, fun and invention replace trauma and stagnation. And I think, um, actually there was, really bloody revenge. You know, 10 of the regicides were publicly executed in front of Charles II, and Samuel Peaks witnessed some uh, some of the executions. Um, and actually, uh, the uh, Charles II's ministers advised him that this was actually backfiring with public opinion, that mm-hmm. um, they didn't want to see this brutal revenge taken on the men who'd signed his father's death warrant. So clearly, public opinion, it's not to say that everyone was in favour of the regicide, uh, but... Uh, was much more balanced than we've
1: been led to believe I think
2: I think perhaps as well there there may well be an aspect of this, the decline of political history as well Um, and uh, the the raising in stature of social history for example and and so in in those terms the restoration period uh, when we talk it's it's a sexier sort of period than that of the civil wars and the protectorate uh, which is much more of a political issue great men history, if you like, to a large extent. Um, and maybe maybe that's out of its time as well. But every so often, every so often, this re-emerges in English history an interest in the Regicides, in the Civil Wars, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I'd agree with you that, that it, it's a lot to do with... You know, and I'm a social and cultural historian, apart part of that, but it's a lot to do with the rise of social and cultural history and getting away from the titanic struggles between powerful men. And I think that is one of the reasons that, that the story of the Regicide has been lost. But as you said, it comes back. Um, uh, and in some unlikely places, uh, I mean, it, it's not surprising, perhaps, that the Toll Puddle Martyrs um, cited the Regicide as, as a precedent for taking on uh, the power uh, of, of, of the British political elite. But um, more surprising, perhaps, is that a lot of Edwardian liberals, Winston Churchill was one of them, Um, who saw Cromwell as the father of democracy. Now, people like Churchill um, weren't in favour of regicide. Uh, In fact, they they too were quite embarrassed by it. But in the late late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the liberal struggle for parliamentary democracy um, used the regicide and used the Civil War as part of, 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 of their narrative, uh, and there's a precedent. So, for example, there's a campaign for House of Lords reform in 1884. Huge crowds stopped at the spot in Whitehall where Charles had been beheaded, and speeches were made, warning the monarchy that if, if they and the elite if they resisted reform of the House of Lords, then there was a precedent for uh, for dealing with the monarchy. So. There wasn't the embarrassed silence there is now. As I said, Churchill, for example, uh, at the uh, turn of the century, when he was uh, first Lord of the Admiralty, he suggested that a dreadnought be named His Majesty's Ship Oliver Cromwell. Uh, And George V described this as an an offensive oxymoron, (laughs) and the plan was dropped. So people like Churchill um, saw this as part of the story of British democracy. Uh, And when Churchill was Prime Minister during the Second World War, um, he commissioned uh, a tank called the Oliver Cromwell, uh, which saw action from 1943 onwards. So um, he failed to get a dreadnought named after his hero, but he got a tank named after it instead. Um, It's not until after the Second World War that the Regicide and the Civil War um, are almost erased from the story of, of British democracy.
2: And why do you think that is? It seems curious. I mean, for instance, when we look at the example of the Cromwell tank, um, this is 1943. This is a time of great popular democracy. You think it anticipates the 1945 election, for example, uh, where Labour um, wins a landslide election. There's the talk of the New Jerusalem here. And yet we see the abandonment almost of, of uh, interest in, in the civil wars.
3: Yes, that's right. I think it's partly because there is a, a fear in the Labour Party of being seen to be too radical and of upsetting the monarchy um in uh a year before the first labor government in 1923 uh the labor party uh conference debated whether the labor party was a republican party or not and it decisively voted that it wasn't a republican party it was a a royalist party but um when uh, a year later when when labor won their sort of uh, their narrow election victory uh, George Lansbury, the senior Labour politician, uh, told a big meeting uh, in London um, that um, uh, there was a precedent for the king, uh, for, uh, the, you know, the king losing his head if he resists the will of Parliament. This was a leading Labour politician using the regicide to concentrate George V's mind, yeah, indeed, on appointing a minority Labour government, mm. and it led to huge, uh, uh, huge controversy. Conservative associations. Uh, said this has opened a new civil war between royalists and anti-royalists. Some some conservatives threatened to shoot Lansbury. Um, George V was so rattled by it that um, he had a quiet word with Ramsay MacDonald at their first meeting, uh, just as Ramsay MacDonald became pro- the first Labour prime minister, and he said, um, I don't want Lansbury in the government. Yeah. And MacDonald agreed. So a combination of uh, royalist royal anxiety, um, the king's anxiety, about republicanism, and Labour embarrassment, and a fear that Labour would lose moderate votes if it used the regicide, even rhetorically, as Lansbury had done. And I think what happened then in 1923 and 24 then echoed in the uh, mid-1940s and
2: onwards. And curiously, I mean, I've I've got that quote here, and it is quite a really striking quote. I, I, I I shall quote it now. A king of England had once stood out against the will of the common people, and he had lost his head King George V would be well advised not to interfere. Such jiggery pokeries to be resisted. That's Lansbury. That is an astonishing quote from it a Labour politician. Is, it, it, he's
3: not just alluding to it, is he? I mean, it's almost a direct it's almost threat. a threat, yeah. You, yeah. Know, you mess yeah. with Labour government and the Labour movement, you'll end up on a scaffold outside Whitehall, he's essentially saying.
2: Um, well, one of the most curious um, aspects of this in recent, uh, in recent months, even, is the way in which... It's members of the Conservative Party, and I think now of people like Daniel Hanan and Douglas Carswell, um, on the right of the Conservative Party at that, who are more likely to invoke Cromwell and that period in positive terms than anyone in the Labour Party.
3: Yes, that is extraordinary. Um and I, I think it, it, it goes to back to although Churchill was a liberal when he suggested a dreadnought be named mm. after. Creswell. Well, these are very Whiggish Tories, I suppose. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah,
1: and um, but but actually, it goes back to
3: you know a conservative uh, narrative as well as a liberal and socialist one. Uh, you know, a conservative, a one nation conservative narrative, but a conservative narrative about uh, British democracy and that. Uh, sometimes peaceful evolution isn't possible. but sometimes you know, t- you know, t- you need tough love to, in the mm. sense to get <laughs> democracy uh, into being. Um, and, I, and I think the Labour Party is still paralysed by this fear of, of being uh, tainted with the Republican uh, Republican cause. And in a funny way, that frees up conservatives. To, to do as Cromwell did and, and use it as part of their story of British democracy. And particularly, of course, in reference to the European Union as well, yeah, and, yeah, um, you know,
2: protecting yeah, democracy. Parliamentary yeah.
3: Which yeah. is ironic given that the regicide and the Civil War inspired European um, mm-hmm. democratic movements.
2: And let's just talk about that one moment because, I mean, obviously it inspired uh, European uh, republican movements. But perhaps uh, the most lingering effect uh, was on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, where where indeed you have three of the regicides escape um, to uh, North America.
3: Yeah, that's right. And they have uh, streets named after them in in New Haven. Um, And they're seen as... uh, They were some of the few regicides to actually escape the vengeance of Charles II. Um, uh, And um, they became kind of forefathers, seen as forefathers of the American Revolution. Um, And and one of the most extraordinary things about this is while the British have forgotten... Uh, about the regicides, Um, they're they're actually memorialised more in the United States. And if you think about Churchill's idea of the English-speaking peoples uh, and the Anglo-Saxon diaspora bringing democracy to the world, um, we think about that in terms of the peaceful evolution of parliaments. But actually, certainly I think what Churchill had in mind was also this um, revolutionary um, tradition, which the Americans still acknowledge Um, and the French and other other Europeans to a lesser extent. But, I mean, one of the regicides was the founder of Harvard University. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is this extraordinary disconnect between Britain's revolution uh, being ignored by the British and being honoured abroad, not least in the United States.
2: Well, let's hope your article, Reluctant Regicides, it's the cover... um, cover article for the february edition of history today let's hope we go some way to reigniting this debate which i think is a much needed one so thank you richard thank you very much